and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're looking at the stories at your fingertips. Not only genetic fingerprinting and how it could bring down a superpower or unearth a 100-year-old family secret, but also the genetics of fingerprints and what they tell us about our early life in the womb. When's the last time you looked at your hands? Not just a glance, but really studied them. The fine parallel lines that form unique patterns, not only on the ends of your fingers, but also cover the palm of your hand and the soles of your feet. The deep creases that interrupt this intricate design when you form a fist. The swirling lines on your fingertips perforated by microscopic sweat glands, leaving a unique identifying stamp on everything you touch, saying, I was here. The fancy scientific term for fingerprints is dermatoglyphs, literally your skin carvings, and they're unique to primates and koalas. Yes, chimps and koalas also have fingerprints, and they're pretty much indistinguishable from human fingerprints, leading to the really rather delightful story where half a dozen chimps were stolen from the ape house at London Zoo in 1975, and the police had to take the ape's fingerprints for analysis. You may be pleased to know that the chimps, in that instance at least, had not committed any crimes. We humans and chimpanzees are very closely related, so it makes sense to have this shared similarity. But koalas are much more closely related to kangaroos and wombats, neither of which have fingerprints. This is an example of convergent evolution. Two distantly related groups both coming up with the same solution to a shared problem, independently of each other. The same way that Disney and DreamWorks both came up with animated films about anthropomorphised insects in 1998, A Bug's Life and Ants, even though they were working separately. But why do we have fingerprints when so many other animals do not? Well, because koalas and primates both came up with the same solution, we can work backwards to discover the problem the solution is solving. And if that logic sounds like we're grasping at straws here, it's because the answer is actually grasping at straws or leaves or fruits or whatever else takes your fancy. The combination of ridges, furrows and sweat glands maximises the friction between the skin and whatever surface you want to touch, regardless of whether it's wet or dry, which is jolly useful if you don't want to drop a slippery wet eucalyptus leaf you've just gone out of your way to grab. And it's not just grip. Your fingertips are among the most sensitive parts of your body, packed with nerve endings that detect the vibrations you make when you run the corrugated skin over a surface. The parallel ridges in your fingerprints have perfectly co-evolved with your vibration sensors, or persinian corpuscles if you want to give them their fancy name, as the spacing between the ridges and furrows amplifies the narrow range of vibrations the sensors can detect. All this combined means your fingertips can detect objects as small as 40 micrometers, or half the width of a human hair. Every single time you run your hands through your hair, 
your fingerprints are performing a feat of microscopic engineering. With all this beautifully evolved biology at the tips of our fingers, you would be forgiven for thinking that we must have a pretty firm grasp on the genetics that create these miniature masterpieces. Well, until very recently, how our fingerprints develop has been somewhat of a mystery. There are three main patterns in fingerprints. Arches, where the lines flow left to right in an arching pattern. Loops, where the lines start to form an arch, but then turn around and double back on themselves. And whirls, where the lines go round and round in circles. In January of this year, a team of Chinese geneticists wanted to pin down the genes that control the development of fingerprint patterns. So, they turned to a technique called Genome-Wide Association Study, often called GWAS for short, which looks for consistent patterns of genetic differences between people. Now, of course, any two people could have a different genetic variant at any point along the genome, that's why we're all unique individuals. My melanin genes might be different from yours, which is why we have different hair or skin colours. Plus, my height genes might be different. The genes for my blood type, you get the picture. So if you were to map out all of the places in the genome where two people have slight differences in the genetic code, so many places would light up that you wouldn't be able to make sense of any of it. Who knows which one of the thousands of variations is the one that controls the thing you're interested in? The power of genome-wide association studies is their size. To look for which parts of the genome controlled fingerprint development, the team collected the DNA of more than 23,000 people of Asian and European ancestry. With that many people, you can narrow down which bits of the genome change when you compare people with arches to people with loops to people with whirls. In this case, the analysis found at least 43 regions on the genome where changing the genetic code in these regions leads to different fingerprints. Once you've got these regions, a grid reference or GPS point if you like, you can look on the map and see what's actually happening at that location. It turns out that one of the most influential of the 43 regions happens to coincide with regulating embryonic limb development. Not the development of the skin, but the development of the whole limb. Our best guess now is that fingerprints are shaped by the different stretching and elongating forces as a fetus's hand grows in the womb. This means our fingerprints are like an archival record, tracing the stages our hands went through from a smooth round bump poking out from an embryo, to a complex machine of muscle and sinew with five unique protuberances that can curl and flex. So pay more attention to your hands, because not only can they perform microscopic miracles, they can also tell you who you were before you were even born. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. 
Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. Feel free to tweet us with any thoughts you have about the show. We would love to hear them. Before we go on to our next fingerprinting story, we just want to touch on an event being held by the University of Bristol. This month, July 2022, will mark 200 years since the birth of everyone's favourite monastic pea farmer, Gregor Mendel, and the Integrative Epidemiology Unit at Bristol are holding a two-day conference to celebrate. You can attend in person or for free online on the 20th and 21st of July to hear talks and discussions from leading experts about Mendel's discoveries, the rediscoveries of his discoveries, and how Mendel's work continues to influence genetics today. To sign up online, search for Mendel at 200 Bristol, or you can use the link in our show notes at geneticsunzipped.com. Now, on with the show. Five months into the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin is under even more scrutiny than ever before. It's been known for a while that the Russian ruler is somewhat paranoid about his health, or more importantly, keeping it a private matter. Rumours of his deteriorating condition make headline news. One day he has cancer, the next it's a brain tumour, Parkinson's disease or early stage dementia. His posture, his gait, his puffy face, his unexplained absences, everything is being analysed not only by the public, but also by spies from some of the most powerful nations in the world. So it shouldn't come as too much of a shock to hear that Putin is also fastidious about something else, his faeces. Reports came out earlier this month that he takes his own toilet with him on his travels, and his security detail are tasked with packing up his number twos and storing them in a special suitcase. A literal poo tin, if you will, so that they can be disposed of on Russian soil and not fall into the hands of an enemy state. There is a precedent for Putin's poo paranoia. In the 1940s, another Russian leader had a fascination with foreign feces. It's reported that Stalin's secret police had a special department for sequestering stools and went so far as to install tailor-made toilets for the visit of the Chinese leader Mao Zedong that delivered the dung to hidden containers where they could be shipped to a lab for analysis. Of course, Genetic analysis was not nearly as advanced in the 1940s as it is today, so the information they could gather was somewhat questionable. According to one former Soviet agent, levels of the amino acid tryptophan could determine whether a person was calm and approachable, whereas low levels of potassium might indicate a nervous disposition or insomnia. Nowadays, we might poo-poo those claims, but excrement can be extremely revealing nonetheless. The most straightforward information it can provide, other than your fibre intake of course, is what medications you may be taking, which could reveal any number of health issues. 
Stool samples are also routinely used to diagnose gastrointestinal illnesses, from infections to bowel cancer. But beyond that, Putin's poos could easily be used to gather enough DNA to sequence his entire genome. So what could foreign spies actually do with the leader's genome? First, let's look at the outlandish ideas. The plot of the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, revolves around a personalised, programmable bioweapon based on someone's DNA. That's certainly beyond the bounds of our current abilities, and anyone who has worked in a genetics lab will know that the reality of gene technology is a long way from what's presented in the film. But this far-fetched scenario isn't completely out of the bounds of possibility, at least one day. We live in a world where scientists are already starting to create personalised medicines, such as immune cells programmed to seek out and destroy cancer cells based on their genetic makeup. A personalised bioweapon is certainly feasible, but it would be extremely expensive, not to mention difficult, to make, and there's no guarantee that it would actually work. Beyond the realm of what's currently science fiction, there are other things to worry about if someone gets their hands on your DNA, such as uncovering information about your health. It's important to remember that our genes are not our destiny. There are fairly few situations where carrying a particular genetic alteration is a 100% guarantee that you will develop a particular disease. In most cases, the genetic variations in our own personal genome give a slightly greater or lesser risk of a wide range of health conditions. And so having access to someone's DNA wouldn't give you a definitive readout of their health, but it would still tell you information about their risks, sensitivities to certain drugs, and other information that they are entitled to keep private. The more concerning application is the ability to track down family connections through DNA, whether close or distant. For many people who have got into this kind of genetic genealogy through direct-to-consumer genetic testing services, such as 23andMe, the ability to identify far-flung relatives has been a gift. But the same kind of technique has been used by detectives to track down the relatives of criminals most famously in the recent Golden State killer case, where police found a murderer by identifying one of their relatives through a public DNA database. DNA analysis can also throw up surprises that tear families apart. For example, when the man you have called dad all of your life turns out not to be your biological father. Or revealing secret children conceived outside of seemingly faithful partnerships. Murderous relatives and infidelities are exactly the kind of information that could be very useful to an unscrupulous state looking to blackmail powerful politicians. And to get a little more sci-fi again, it is possible to make copies of someone's DNA and deposit it at a crime scene or anywhere else to make it look like they were there. Another potentially powerful technique for manipulating the truth. 
Of course, it doesn't take stolen stools to gather someone's DNA. There's a rapidly growing interest in researching environmental DNA. That's DNA you collect after it's been shed into the environment, rather than collecting it from the individual themselves. This could be a snotty tissue, a glass you drank from, or a hair that you left behind. Perhaps more worryingly for world leaders, there have even been successful studies looking at collecting DNA from the air you breathe out. There's an unconfirmed report that the presidents of the United States have people sweeping up after them, making sure dirty tissues, glasses they've drunk from, and even surfaces they've touched don't leave any DNA behind. French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz apparently refused to take a PCR test for COVID in order to meet Putin before his invasion of Ukraine because they didn't trust the Russians with their genomic information leading to the infamous pictures of Vladimir Putin socially distancing himself with a series of increasingly long tables. And according to secret documents released by WikiLeaks, the then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton requested American spies to collect the DNA of foreign leaders and key members of the United Nations. But before you start to get paranoid that someone might be after your genes for nefarious purposes, this kind of DNA theft is a crime in the UK and some other places, including certain US states and Australia, with the exception of its use in law enforcement. And these rules would certainly apply to the PCR testing services here in the UK, where we have very strict controls on the collection and use of genetic and other data related to our health. So, unless you're planning on becoming the leader of one of the biggest superpowers in the world, you can feel safe to poo without protection. Genetic fingerprinting doesn't have to be used only for big, high-profile dramas like international espionage. Sometimes it can reveal the small, personal stories lived by everyday people which are no less meaningful. One such story was uncovered at the start of this year by a group of Swiss geneticists who were asked if they could help lay to rest a family secret that had hidden in the shadows for nearly 150 years. The year is 1885, and in the recently formed Austro-Hungarian Empire, a young blacksmith, Xeva, falls in love with his boss's beautiful teenage daughter, Dina. But when her father, the boss, finds out, he is furious. After all, Dina comes from a Catholic Jewish family, and Xaver is a Gentile. Xaver is banned from his blacksmithing job and travels to the city, finding work in a factory. But these star-crossed lovers could not be separated for long, and Dina runs away from her father in order to be with Xaver. Life isn't easy in a big city for a 17-year-old Catholic Jewish girl with no family support, but luckily, Xaver's new boss, Ron, the factory owner, is also Jewish 
and his family takes Dina into work as a servant for them. To recap, we have Xaver, the plucky blacksmith, who is dating Dina, the pretty servant girl, who works for Ron, the factory owner. Got that? Good. And you can probably see where this story is going. Although Ron, the factory owner, is 30 years old, he takes a shining to his new servant girl. And despite the fact that Dina and Xaver are still a couple, Dina also becomes close to the factory owner Ron, and nine months later gives birth to a baby boy, Rank. Rank is baptised as a Catholic, like his Catholic Jewish mother Dina, and also given Jewish rituals, just like both Dina and Ron had when they were born. You would have thought that this child, Rank, would cause havoc on the love triangle, but oddly enough, everyone seemed to be just fine with it. After a year and a half of working in Ron's factory, Kaseva makes a good career for himself and marries his childhood sweetheart Dina, adopting the baby Rank in the process as his stepson. Xaver and Dina have three kids together, meaning baby Rank now has a younger half-brother, Arl, and two other half-siblings. Of course, any story about a Jewish family living through the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the early 1900s isn't going to stay happy for long. Through World War I, the half-brothers Rank and Arl fought on the battlefields and, miraculously, both survived. However, it wasn't long before World War II arrived and the Nazis required them both to prove their ancestry to show whether or not they were Jewish. The younger brother Arl was okay. His dad, Xaver the blacksmith, was a Gentile. Renk, on the other hand, had a much harder time. Both his mother, Dina, and his true father, Ron, the factory owner, were Jewish. So, he lied. He pretended that he was Xaver's son rather than stepson and managed to use his family's Catholic baptism status to avoid being outed as a Jew. His life throughout the war was burdened by this big secret, knowing that if the Nazis ever found out, they would likely send him to the concentration camps. Rank even kept this secret from his family and only revealed his true parentage to his children on his deathbed. A hundred years passed, and Rank and Arles' grandchildren learned of their family's great secret. But they weren't convinced of who Rank's dad was, so they turned to genetics, enlisting the help of Dr Cordula Haas from the University of Zurich. The easiest way to check would be by looking at the Y chromosome, the male chromosome passed only from father to son. If Rank and Arl had been full siblings, they would both have inherited the same Y chromosome from their father, Xaver. But if Rank's true father was instead Ron, he would have a different Y chromosome. But that would be too easy. Both Arl and Rank only had daughters, so their Y chromosomes never made it into the next generation. If only the grandchildren had some of Arl's and Rank's DNA, 
they could just test that. But where were they going to find a sample of their grandparents' DNA? Where would you look, dear listener? Why not send in your answers on the back of a postcard? Answers on the back of a postcard? Of course! The family still had some of their grandparents' postcards that had been posted around 1922, back when stamps were licked rather than self-adhesive. If Arl and Rank had licked the stamps themselves, rather than a post office worker, and the DNA from their saliva was still intact in the glue after a hundred years, and it was somehow possible that you could get the DNA out of the glue without damaging it, and it was possible to sequence the DNA, well, if everything went right, you could maybe compare their Y chromosomes. To start with, Haas needed to check if the postage stamps even had saliva on them or whether they had just been wetted on a wet pad. Luckily, there are very straightforward kits for this that look just like a COVID lateral flow test designed for forensic testing of crime scenes. And yes, the stamps contained human saliva. They were off to a good start. Now they had to extract the DNA from the stamps. They carefully cleaned the front of the stamp, which could have been touched hundreds of times, and steamed the stamp off the envelope. They then swabbed the back of the stamp to run a DNA test, looking for short tandem repeats, tiny sections of DNA code that get copy and pasted next to each other. But the number of these copies varies from person to person. They compared the autosomes, the non-sex chromosomes, from the stamps against the grandchildren. The DNA on the four postcards that Renk wrote were indeed similar to Renk's grandsons, so we know that Renk himself must have licked the stamps. One of the postcards Arl had written came up with female DNA in the saliva on the stamp. Presumably, a maid or a postal worker had licked that stamp instead of Arl. But luckily, the second postcard they had from Arl came up as a family match for his granddaughter. We now know we have the 100-year-old saliva from both Renk and Arl, and the DNA is still intact enough to compare their Y chromosomes. Were they indeed half-brothers, with Renk the illegitimate child of the Jewish factory owner? Or were they full brothers, with Gentile Zaver as Renk's father? The results were a revelation. Renk and Arl were full brothers. Even though Dina may have slept with the factory owner Ron, her firstborn child was fathered by her childhood sweetheart Xaver. Sadly though, not even Dina knew this. Rank wrongly believed that his biological father was Jewish at a time when that information could cost him his life. He forged a lie and had to present it to Nazi scrutiny, knowing that any wrong move, any slip of the tongue, would see him sent to a concentration camp. If only he knew. The lie he made up was the truth all along. (laughs) 
That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the inevitability of human behaviour, chatting with neurogeneticist and author Kevin Mitchell about whether the way we think has already been determined before we're even born. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to leave a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It is made by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learners' societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Oh, <laughs>